I invite you to make your way to Luke chapter 14. We're going to consider today the first 14 verses in this chapter in a message entitled, Jesus Calls It Like He Sees It. The year was 1955, and the event was the World Series. Yogi Berra and Jackie Robinson, two of the greatest baseball players ever, were on opposing teams. The New York Yankees were playing the Brooklyn Dodgers, and in the top of the eighth inning of game one, the Yankees were leading by two runs with two outs and had a 1-0 count on the batter at the plate. Jackie Robinson broke for home against the Yankees' left-handed pitcher, Whitey Ford. Ford went through a long over-the-head wind-up and made a clean throw to Barra, who was catching at the plate. Barra was in a position to tag Robinson out when Robinson came in feet first. Robinson was called safe by the home plate umpire Bill Summers, and Barra was incensed. The Yankees went on to win that game, but the Dodgers won the series in seven. Remarkably, Yogi Berra went on to win 10 World Series in 19 years with the Yankees as a player, and then three more World Series championships as a manager, winning 13 out of the 21 that he appeared in as a player or as a coach. Now, it's said that Berra never fully let go of the call at the plate with Jackie Robinson. Every time he would see a photo of the play, He would walk by it or see it somewhere else, and he'd simply say, you're out. Barra and Robinson's wife, Rachel, continued to see each other in social settings for some 60 years after that, and uh, playfully, Rachel would say, safe, and Barra would simply say, out. There's another old story about three baseball umpires discussing how they made calls, and the first said, I just call them as I see them. The second said, I call them as they are. The third said, they ain't nothing till I call them. When our scripture passes today, Jesus calls it like he sees it. But the difference is when Jesus calls it as he sees it, he's always right. In fact, when Jesus says something, what he says is reality. It can be counted on, even if we don't like it or it's not comfortable or it takes us to a place where we have to look within to see where we are spiritually. He is always accurate in his assessment. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, says, One Sabbath when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer to these things. Verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. 
When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man and then in humiliation you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Finally, verse 12. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In these verses, Jesus confronts sin. A lot of people like to talk about how Jesus spent time with sinners, and that's certainly true. Jesus, in his ministry, encountered many different types of people, and when he encountered lost people, he did not expect lost people to act like saved people. He interacted with everybody in love and in mercy, even when he was saying difficult things. And in interacting with people, he did not hide the truth or leave people in their sin. Instead, he confronted them so that they could be delivered and so that they could receive eternal life. Because remember, Jesus came for one purpose, according to Luke, the heart of it, and that is to seek and to save that which was lost. That was the mission of Jesus, to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, there are three warnings in these verses, coupled with instructions to apply to our lives. Warning number one is that we are to avoid hypocrisy. We are to avoid hypocrisy. We find this in the first six verses. So here was the scene. Jesus is invited to eat on the Sabbath at the home of a prominent Pharisee. The Pharisees were influential leaders in Judaism at the time of Jesus in the early church. They emphasized following the Mosaic law, plus they had added 600 or more of their own restrictions and laws on top of the law of Moses. The Pharisees were comprised mostly of middle-class businessmen and leaders in the synagogues. They were a part of the larger Sanhedrin, which was the overall ruling religious body. And they had developed all these add-on laws, and they were concerned about not breaking the Mosaic law. Now, the scripture says that they were watching Jesus closely at this meal. William Barclay said the word used for watching is the word that is used for interested and sinister espionage, meaning that Jesus was not casually being watched. He was under scrutiny. So there's a man at this meal whose body was swollen 
with fluid. Some translations mention specifically that he was suffering from dropsy. Now, we don't know why he was suffering from this, but at any rate, he had a condition where he had excess fluid in the tissues of his body. It may have been caused by cancer. It could have been caused by liver or heart or kidney problems. We aren't told. But Jesus was probably being set up in this moment by being here in this place with this man on the Sabbath. They probably thought they had Jesus trapped. Remember, the Pharisees were antagonists of Jesus. Jesus ignored their man-made traditions, which had been elevated to the level of Scripture, especially as it related to the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath was important. It had been set forth at creation after God had made what he made and spoke it into being. Then he rested and he implemented that principle for us as well, not because God was tired or weary from creation, but as a sign that we are to honor God. It's reiterated in the Ten Commandments again in Exodus chapter 20, where God's people are told that they are to honor God on the Sabbath, and the principle applies even to us today, though we're not under the law in the strictest sense of it, we can't go 24-7 all the time and honor God properly. So there were people there that were probably thinking, why is Jesus here? And they're probably looking at this man and wondering, why is he here? Well, they were about to find out. Jesus takes the initiative to ask the host Pharisee and the guests whether or not it would have been lawful to heal the man on the Sabbath. Now, when Jesus asked this question, the room goes silent. Nobody's got an answer. Now, the silence was not for lack of an answer, but instead, I think it was because they knew that they could not withstand the Lord in that moment. They didn't have a good answer because they probably were anticipating what was going to follow. So Jesus, after he doesn't get the answer, carries on. He performs the healing miracle for the man and he sends him away. Now he had done similarly on three other occasions reported by Luke when he cast out the demons and he healed Simon Peter's mother and and, uh, mother-in-law in in chapter 4 and then healed a man with a withered hand in chapter 6, and then most recently when we looked at the woman that was hunched over in chapter 13. But after Jesus does this, he follows with a question of his own again. And he says, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Again, the room was silent. Nobody had an answer. Now, what was going on here? There was a higher purpose at work. Jesus' logic was simple. If it was permissible to help animals on the Sabbath day, how much more was it right to heal people who are made in God's image? And if they said no, they would reveal an uncaring and inhumane attitude toward human suffering. Even more significantly, they would reveal their hypocrisy because they had been breaking their own rules about the Sabbath. Their Sabbath regulations allowed for the rescue of 
animals, as later did the Mishnah as well. And here were these leaders, well-intentioned, but yet driven by religious beliefs that were constricting them, and they were hypocrites leading other people astray. Now, the Bible is clear. Hypocrisy is a sin. Hypocrisy is always a sin. And there are two types of hypocrisy. One is to profess belief in something and then act contrary to your own belief. Another is to look down on people in judgment and forget that we ourselves are flawed sinners. To look at other people and think that somehow we're better than them or we're more deserving of them. So warning number one is avoid hypocrisy, which is followed, I think, by an instruction to apply to our lives. And that is we are to seek to be consistent. Know the word of God in your life. Recognize sin and shortcomings. Be willing to repent of those. Look for those blind spots and ask Jesus to help you be more like him. Warning number two is avoid pride. We now turn to verses 7 through 10. Jesus follows with a parable. A parable being a real-life illustration given alongside of a biblical truth to give an example. So he would use a physical example to make a spiritual point. Parables are prominent in the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus had noticed how guests who were invited to a dinner would arrive. And when they got there to the dinner, what would they do? They would choose the best place in the room. In fact, they would ceremonially seat themselves. Now, at the heart of this, this is an outrageous story. Because Jesus says, look, if you're invited to the banquet, don't recline at the best place. Because, in fact, there may be somebody who is more distinguished than you who may arrive. And when he arrives, the host may say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. Now, I think part of the backdrop of this is that Jesus was speaking to the religious Jews. What was the position of Israel under the plan of God as it related to the Messiah? Well, God raised up Abram. And he told him that he was going to bless him and he was going to make of him a great nation. And through that nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God chose those people not because there was anything special in them, not because they were deserving, but because God's intent was to send the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through them. And the Old Testament unfolds, the prophecies are given, the message is proclaimed. And then, as Galatians 4 and verse 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And I say all that to say this. They were people of privilege. They had been in the position of honor, seated at the head of the table. It would have been hard for them to think that there would be other people who would actually be seated ahead of them. And yet, the message of Luke is that the gospel came not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Even as we read in Psalm 107 that God would gather people from the east and the west and the north and the south. What is that speaking of? It's speaking of God gathering a family for himself from every tribe, tongue, 
and language, every nation of the earth. And I think Jesus is giving a preview of this here, speaking to them of the importance of avoiding pride and thinking they deserve something that they did not. Remember also Jesus was at the home of a Pharisee. He had noticed how people strategically placed themselves in positions of honor and attention. The seating arrangement as it was at a dinner like that sort of reflected a hierarchy. The most honored person would sit in a particular seat. The next person who was uh, the next most honored would be seated and on down the line. Now, if you're a sports fan, you might have seen in the last few days the interview uh, with the Hall of Famer Patrick Ewing. Let me give you a little context in case you're not, and it'll help you understand where I'm headed with this. Patrick Ewing is the coach of the Georgetown Hoyas who beat Villanova in the Big East Tournament. And it was somewhat of an upset. He, of course, played at Georgetown back in the 1980s. He's an NBA Hall of Famer who played with the New York uh, Knicks, and he's also quite noticeable at some seven feet tall. They were at the Big East Tournament at Madison Square Garden. It's important to remember in the context of this that in the rafters at Madison Square Garden is Patrick Ewing's jersey to honor him because of what he did in his playing career. And apparently he felt like the security and the staff had stopped him too much and actually accosted him questioning who he was at these various checkpoints. So Ewing says in the press conference afterwards, he said, I do want to say one thing though. I thought this was my building and I feel terrible getting stopped, accosted, people asking for passes. And then he said this, everybody in this building should know who the blank I am. Now, whether or not he was speaking in part in humor, I don't know. I'd give the man the full benefit of the doubt. However, if your attitude is such that you think everybody ought to know who you are, everybody ought to give you the respect that you deserve, then you may very well be the type of person who would put yourself in the best seat at the banquet. You might be the type of person whose pride has gotten the best of you. So what did Jesus say to do? He said, listen, when you're invited... Go and recline in the lowest place. And then the one who invited you, when he comes, he'll say to your friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. There's a fifth century rabbi who offered some practical advice in keeping the instruction of Jesus on this point. And he said, stay two or three seats below your place and sit there until they say to you, go farther up. Do not begin by going up because then they may say to you, go down. It's better that they should say to you, go up, go up, than it is as they should say to you, go down, go down. Now, friends, I think there's more here than just social wisdom. It's a principle of the kingdom that if you humble yourself and you take the lower place in the kingdom, God will reward you appropriately. Notice what Jesus says in verse 11. For Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is giving an eternal spiritual principle. 
that will be evident in the end when everything is made right. Humbling the proud and exalting the humble is an essential kingdom principle. Now, Jesus is going to come back to this very soon when we get to Luke chapter 18, when he contrasts the Pharisee who prayed and who thought he was better than the tax collector and the tax collector who beat his chest and would not even raise his head. And Jesus says the very same thing in that context. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, friends, there are not a lot of people in our culture that truly believe this principle. I read an article as I was thinking about this very sermon, I kid you not, entitled, How to Master the Art of the Humble Brag. The subtitle of this article is, Here's How to Do It Without Sounding Boastful. So you can even get instruction on how to brag and look humble while you're doing it. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. Do we truly believe it? Do we try to get in the prominent seats without appearing like we're trying to get in the prominent seats? Warning number two is avoid pride, which is followed by an instruction to apply to our lives. Seek to be humble. And leave the results to God. Warning number three, avoid favoritism. We now focus on verses 12 through 14. Jesus gives more advice to the honor-seeking dinner guests, and he turns his teaching to the host and to the guest list. And he says, listen, if you're going to give a lunch, you're going to give a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they might just invite you back and then you're going to get repaid. Now, the do not ask here is the idea of habitually asking. Obviously, Jesus was not discouraging normal hospitality with friends and family and neighbors. Jesus accepted those types of invitations himself. Remember, he spent time in the home of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Uh, He's not discouraging us from doing that type of thing. But what he warns us against is limiting the guest list to people who can only reciprocate. This is the equivalent of the social quid pro quo. Now note this, elitism is selfish and it is typically built on reciprocity. James addresses a very similar circumstance on the sin of favoritism in James chapter 2 where he gives the example of someone who comes into a meeting with a gold ring and fine clothes and then on the other hand there's someone who comes in who's poor, who has filthy clothes and he said if you look in favor at the rich person and you disdain the poor person, you've made distinctions and you've become judges with evil thoughts. And then James said, it is God who has chosen the poor in this world to be rich and heirs of the kingdom are those who love him. We should not dishonor the poor or oppress the poor, but instead we're called to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, Jesus gives us some specific instruction here. He said, don't 
Go inviting those who are just going to do something for you. Invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. They cannot repay you, but he says you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I think there's a very important spiritual application to this that also gives us insight into the social application. Here's what I mean. Who did Jesus come to minister to? The sick and the broken, the needy. Those who saw themselves as people with spiritual need. Who does Jesus welcome into the kingdom? Sinners. He welcomes people like us who have nothing of our own righteousness to offer up to God. Our religion is not anything that we can offer up to God that would make us acceptable to him. The things that we do are not enough. We're broken sinners. We're in need of God's grace. We're in need of his righteousness. And he says, come to the table and you'll be blessed. And he says, then when you in turn treat other people this way, then you're going to be blessed at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, you might want to note here, if you're keeping track, this is the first mention of the resurrection by Luke so far, although it's already been assumed. He's speaking now of being blessed and then being rewarded later, and everything is headed toward the cross. It's all focused on the purpose that Jesus came for. I think this promise was also prophesied back in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 and 3 where the scripture says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The love of Jesus serves other people. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to serve other people. We're not going to do it manipulatively. We're not going to do it with selfishness. We're not going to do it because other people will do something for us in return. We will simply do so because we love God and we love people. And I think of the passage in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus is speaking of the kingdom to come and he's talking about all of the acts of service that his servants had done. And they said, when did we do all this stuff? And Jesus said, whatever you do unto the least of these, then you've also done unto me. When we serve God in the way he wants us to serve him as we serve others, we're going to be blessed And if you focus on eternity and not the immediate rewards of this life, it will change your perspective and your approach toward others. Now, obviously, there are many immediate blessings that come to us when we serve the Lord in this life, but many are not evident immediately. And you want to know how you can test your motivations as you serve God and serve others? You can test your motivations by evaluating how you feel when you do something and you don't get credit for it. Think about it. 
if it stirs you up and, and your feelings are hurt because nobody patted you on the back or recognized you publicly or gave you credit for what you did, it's very likely you're doing it with the wrong motivations. But if you serve without that type of mentality and you heed this warning to avoid favoritism and you follow the instruction to apply it to your life so that you can seek to honor all, then God is going to be glorified. I ask this question as I come toward a close. When Jesus looks at our lives, what does he see? They tried to entrap Jesus on the Sabbath day. With two questions, he reduced them to silence. Then he showed what sincere love for others looks like. He spoke mercifully about how we're to interact with others. But here's the most important part, I think, of all in these examples. I believe he was speaking to people who, were, who thought they were part of the kingdom of God. And in fact, they were lost. They were lost. So what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about true righteousness. He's talking about genuine faith. And I want to say to you in closing that our lives either demonstrate the absence of faith or they demonstrate the authenticity of faith. Your life either demonstrates the absence of faith or it demonstrates the authenticity of your faith. And God help us that our actions would demonstrate the authenticity of our faith. And whether or not we've come in repentance, turning from our sin and turning to Christ and Christ alone for salvation and receiving the righteousness that God has for us, the gift of eternal life that comes only through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. On this question... When Jesus looks at our lives, what does he see? How would you answer that personally? Where are you at spiritually today? Are you a part of the kingdom because you've come in repentance and faith in Jesus? If you are, he's laid forth the principles that you're to apply to your life. He's warned you of some things that you need to avoid. And he's telling you there's blessings to come. Make sure you keep your life in the right perspective. But if you don't know him today, today could be the day of salvation in your life. So what do I need to know to be saved? You need to know that God is a holy God and that you're a sinner. You need to know that there's no way for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be made right with God, unless God intervened. And you need to know that God sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to earth, who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled the law of God, and who gave his life in your place on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins 
And he was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. And even now, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, inviting and welcoming sinners like us into the kingdom of God. If you don't know him today, would you trust him? Would you come to him by faith? Father, we thank you for these teachings of Jesus. The reality is none of us keep these perfectly because we're not Jesus. But we look to him for our pattern and for our hope and for our example and most importantly as our Savior. And I pray that more and more that we would grow to be like him and as we grow to be like him, we'd be more pleasing to you. We give this time of closing response over to you, Lord, if there are decisions that need to be made, steps of faith that need to be taken, prayers that need to be prayed. I pray, Lord, that people would respond to you in faith. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.